Want to make your own podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easy, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. Here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like I have an outlet for the creativity and ideas I want to share with the world. I recommend you give it a try. We all have a voice, so share it with the world. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters to get started today. Welcome to the Days of Noah podcast, where we talk all things biblical, supernatural, and strange. Today we're going to pick up where we left off from last week's episode with the second half of our conversation with Tim Bentz as he gets into the gatekeeping principle. And this is something that I had wanted to pick his brain about for some time, so very much looking forward to posting this. And he gets into some of the biblical precedent of this principle and how it applies to our life today. So God wants you to um, apply the word of God to your design. So not everybody's born to be a seer or born to be a prophet or born to be an apostle or, or, or even a preacher. But whatever you were created to do, his power and his word is going to enable you to do it with excellence and with, with joy. And I can't do what you're enabled to do unless that's part of my, my equipment. So there are some things that I can say this is for everybody. And then there are other things that you you've got to have a certain gift that enables you to 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 deal with that, you know. And um, so I I think it's a perfect thing to ask. Everybody has the right to ask for something they don't have, and God loves that. Even if He says no, uh, He doesn't want to withhold any good thing from us. But but He's not going to give you something that will ruin you either. And so. There are a lot of people that are very gifted with like a gift of mercy, for instance, and they may not have a prophetic uh, ounce of of DNA in their spirit at all. Well, I need mercy as much as I need to see the next uh, revelation from heaven. So when we understand our own design, then it becomes easier to say, let me have everything God wants for me. And if I hear somebody else's testimony and it's different from mine, I can receive it with joy. And I've got a right to say, God, would you do that with me? Um, but I think a lot of people want those things again for the wrong reasons. And God sometimes withholds them from them, not because he wants to, but because he's going to deal with their heart first. So when I look back on my own journey, I realized that the only thing that I have that's an advantage over everyone else I know is he he got me when I was so young, I didn't make a lot of bad decisions first. And he enabled me to have a, a, a heart for him that was just off the charts compared to what I would have been if he had not introduced himself to me that way. and. Later, when I was in my young 30s, I asked Jesus if he would show me my heart. I wanted to know if I was really in in good standing with him or not. Even though I had lots of people that credited me for a lot of good stuff, I wanted to know what he 
what he thought about the real condition of my heart. And he answered me very oddly at first. He said, I'm going to show you that on two levels. He said, uh, one, I'm going to show you where you are right now with me. And then I'm going to open your eyes and I'm going to let you see also what you would have been if you had said yes to me when you were a child. And uh, the first the first thing I saw was was uh, dozens of things that I was not doing right, that I was falling short of his glory, uh, areas of my heart that I had not fully turned over to him that I didn't understand because I thought I had had done all that. And he, he showed me where I was falling short and it was unsettling, but it was really good to see it because then I could deal with it. It wasn't sin. It was things that I had not done, but I was I was still not um, fully letting him have that part of my heart. And um, the second thing, when he opened my eyes, he said, here's what you would look like right now if I hadn't have introduced myself to you. And that one undid me for three months. I was weeping and undone for three months of my life. I couldn't function hardly at all because I, I looked at the wickedest man on the face of the earth. And I realized, that must be what happened to Paul. Uh, I think he had gotten a glimpse of his heart without Jesus. And uh, and then the Lord answered me very after the at the end of that 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 three months of weeping. He said he, he came and rescued me. He's like, you need to stop. You, you need to understand this is this is not you anymore. That's your old, the old creation. That person is not alive anymore. And uh, you're never going to go back to that. However, you need to understand that I don't want people to judge you by the outer appearance about what they hear. I, I judge it by the fruit. And so um, just because you have many commendable things now, uh, you always remember it's because of me. You know, it's because of what I've done for you. And you didn't, you didn't accomplish anything with your own power. And... Uh, I, I find that humble. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I wonder too if uh, I was just thinking about this and maybe in preparation for our talk this last week I was thinking, and it sounds like something maybe you would say if you don't mind me saying, but I thought, well, if God answered, so say I I asked for God to speak to me, you know, in in a more um, conversational way like you've but you've been talking about which i think most most believers don't have that experience but i i feel like he would say well how good are you at listening to what i've already said in my word you know what i mean <laughs> like like i fall so short of what he's already revealed in the bible like why would he speak to me audibly i don't know i think that touches on the gatekeeping topic too because my heart is the first mate that i'd have to learn how to steward and, uh, you know, I don't want to say this in a way that sounds like I'm commending myself, but um, I do believe that uh, because I had such a phenomenal encounter with Jesus at a very young age, somewhere in there, I stepped into this place where I just couldn't say no to Jesus. You know? And it was my desire. I didn't have to fight with it. I didn't have to, you know, wrestle with myself to do what he, what he showed me or, or asked for. I just was so in love with Jesus. It's like anything he wants, that's what I want. And it was like a, almost a daily, like I'm begging Jesus to, to show me how to do more of what he wants. And, and then um, the face to face at, at six years old, it sounds phenomenal when I say to people, I saw Jesus at six years old. Well, why did I see him? Um, according to the word, um, no one can see God and live. So God must know that you've already chosen the, uh, a willingness to die or he wouldn't show his face to you. And so that's a prerequisite. He's not going to show it to you if you're not really willing to die for him. Uh, the second thing is, um, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I did not feel like I was pure in heart. But when I asked Jesus, why did I see you and others have not? He said, when you were two and you engaged with me like a friend, you, know, you 
you weren't overwhelmed by a conversation. You, you stepped into a, a friendship with me. You, you talked to me like I was just a normal person. And I, I spoke to you that way. But he said, but your heart from that point forward, you were constantly making decisions and including me in those decisions. And so by the time you were six, I had imparted to you a pure heart. And you didn't ask for it, but you were constantly asking for me. So I gave you what's necessary to know me on that level. And, and so if you pray for people to see my face and they tell you they want to have that same kind of experience, first pray for them to have a, a pure heart. And when I see that their heart is pure, I will show them their fa my face. He said, also, you can bless people with the number six blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you, cause his face to shine upon you. He said, you need to give that blessing to everybody that wants it. And it, it sort of sets a, a mark and it guarantees that they're going to have a face-to-face -face with God because the blessing will, will eventually enable them to have that encounter. And God will mark a date when he will show himself that way. And uh, I've done that many, many, many times in my life since. That's been my favorite blessing ever since I heard that. Yeah. Um, how are we doing on time, Tim? What's your What's your schedule like? I don't want to keep you uh, past what you're able, but I'm, I'm good. We can keep going as long as you want. You're good. I've, I've okay. Well, well, I'll tell you what. Why don't um, you know maybe twenty, thirty minutes at the most, maybe, but whatever you got. Um, why don't we get into a bit of the the gatekeeping principle because that was so profound um, when Luke and I first heard it about how in a city, I think you said of a million people, it was seven or eight Christian leaders that had to repent of of wickedness in their own heart of having hatred and and unforgiveness. And then they saw the murder rate in this particular part of town drop as a result of that. And I, I was wanted to press you for maybe a few more anecdotes of how you've seen that at work in in different situations of, of you know, different sins going on. And maybe also to ask you too, because I, I live in a I live in a small town of about ten thousand and we don't hear of you know, obviously, in 10,000 people, you don't hear about too many terrible things, although I'm sure, you know, my, my brother-in-law is a police officer, but I'm sure things happen, but you don't hear about them. Well, a month or so ago, we had a, uh, a lady was uh, sexually assaulted um, in, in the middle of, you know, 5, 5 p.m. Uh, on, a, on a bike path or something, and that principle came to mind as I was thinking, wow, is it is it your people here in this little town that are allowing something in our hearts that maybe this person without restraint did this thing? So maybe just get your thoughts on that, and then if you could share maybe a few anecdotes of how you've seen that principle at work in different ways. Okay. Well, gatekeeping should not be uh, an unfamiliar term with us as the body of Christ. Um, it's very evidential in scripture so when you look back in the word and you just look if you just look up gatekeepers or gatekeeping or even gates you'll get a pretty good body of scriptures that deal with the topic uh it's a little bit ambiguous and how that applies in the new testament because we we don't we don't see god commissioning gatekeepers in the new testament we see him commissioning apostles and um, and then sending the whole body out. And I think because we have made the mistake of thinking that all he needed was 12 apostles and then 70 disciples that maybe became apostles too, we forget that the whole body was engaged and filled with the Spirit. So all the, all the things that are required in the Old Testament, they probably transferred into the New. They're just always not, they're just always named or not named because he knows that they already knew what they were. So they knew what priests and Levites were, and they knew what gatekeepers were. But we don't see that term specifically used in the New Testament the same way it is in the Old. But I think the principle was still valid. It was still going on. Now, that said, consider that Jesus first chooses 12 people out 
to follow him, or 12 men, and he doesn't seem to be given the right to go choose whoever he wanted. He has to actually journey a little bit to find them. So the principle he's doing is he's letting Father God show him who he is called to be with him. I think he actually gave up his right to choose who he wanted to hang out with. And he let trusted father, like, you choose my friends and my acquaintances. And if if I'm going to build a ministry, you build it and I'll, I'll say yes. And so father's engaged in choosing who's going to connect. He, he's got 12 tribes he's trying to uh, completely restore back into covenant fully. So he chooses 12 men. I think if we actually did a study of the lineages of all 12 of those men, we would probably discover that they had on one side of the family or another a a good amount of DNA from each of the 12 tribes. Now, it's it's not necessarily easy to see because two of those or four of those guys are brothers, two, two brothers from one family, two brothers from another family. And so Jesus was very interesting in, in how he chose them. But again, my, the point is like he didn't, he didn't decide that that guy's cool. I'm going to ask him to follow me. He walked up to them and at the time, first gauges with them uh, from just a scripture perspective, they didn't know who he was. He didn't show up with the robes of a priest, and he didn't show up with an entourage of revival tents, and he didn't have any publications saying, "I'm coming to ca- I'm coming to town, and I'm going to you know start a new thing." Uh, he just walked up to a guy that had probably never seen him before, and says, "Come and follow me." And something was so profound that Father God did to cause that person's heart to leap and say yes. Now, from a gatekeeper perspective, God doesn't necessarily call them gatekeepers in Scripture, but he's calling them to represent all the tribes of Israel, and he's restoring a nation to its king. So they had to have something profound in their spirit that would have moved other other men or moved other moved the nation which we do see culminates in the second chapter of acts when they all come together and they begin to move on who they were created to be it turns the nation up it turns the world upside down now the peter's the one that's my favorite when you look at it from a gatekeeping perspective which i think all of them had but it highlights some things about peter and first, it tells us some things that he often did wrong. He had a zeal that sometimes would run ahead of his uh, wisdom. Um, he sometimes made statements that he couldn't back up. You know? But then Jesus gives him the keys to the kingdom. You know? Now, the thing that you got to remember always when you think about gates is gates are, have doors and doors have keys usually. So Jesus makes this very ambiguous statement to Peter when they're just sitting around the campfire waiting to go to the next place. Jesus suddenly says to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. And he doesn't explain it. No. Now, he, he might have, but we don't have scripture that shows that he explained it. So it appears that he just went on after that. and Peter had to figure out what that meant. Uh, if Peter went back to the campfire and sat around for the rest of the night with his buddies, you know the other 11 must have asked him, what did he give you? You know, He said, well, I don't have any real keys in my hand, but he told me he was giving me the keys to the kingdom. Well, what is that? We, It's hard to figure it out from just that message of scripture. But as you read on and you look at Peter's life, it, it becomes evidential that his heart was the key. That when he changed his heart, something changed in the nation. So Peter is confronted with himself from that day forward on a profound scale. Jesus prays for him, but also won't let him get away with anything. He prays that his faith doesn't fail, but he also 
just every time he every time he does something wrong, it, it's like shooting himself in the foot. It, it comes out in front of everybody. And so he's he's transforming every day, probably along the way, because he's dealing with this principle. Now, the other thing is um, in the Old Testament, uh, King David is the best example of this, because in Chronicles, King David, once he gets the crown and he establishes the kingdom, he, he unites the tribes. And he ends up with getting crowned in Hebron, and then seven and a half years later, he's crowned in Jerusalem with with uh, um, uh, Judah first, and then the other tribes. <clears throat> and once he's got the full kingdom, the first act he does as a king is he reinstates the Levites, and he appoints gatekeepers, and he begins to question the Lord about how to deal with the ark. And he wants to bring the ark back to Jerusalem or back to you know where he's where he's near where he stayed. And <clears throat> if you read in Chronicles, he ordains uh, about thirty-eight thousand people for the work of stewarding over the ark and over the presence of God. Now that means he poured oil on a lot of people, and he includes things that we didn't. We don't necessarily see, but they're there before. We just don't see them highlighted as much. But he includes singers and instrument players and and uh, uh, prophets and intercessors and and watchers on the wall and gatekeepers are all mentioned. Watchers on the wall and gatekeepers probably are very similar, but maybe not exactly the same thing. But he appoints 4,000 gatekeepers. From the Levites, and that's incredible to think that a city the size of Jerusalem in his day needed four thousand people to watch over the gates. Well, that has that that looks fine if you got a walled city. We could think that's just a a job like the doorman. But when you understand the Levites. It's telling us there's something more to this task than just opening a door and shutting it. They're not just guys with the keys, but they have a heart that's called to minister to the king. And so the Levite's job is to separate what's precious from what's vile, to teach the people righteousness, to stand night and day before the Lord and, and praise him and worship him, and to um, settle disputes among the people, keep the accurate time and so that the calendar is always in sync with God, and then to, um, to, to stand in righteousness with the Lord himself so that they could constantly be beholding his face. That's why they had to surround the ark and they had to be the ones that carried it. So when you think that David gets in trouble when he tries to move the ark without the gatekeepers and without the Levites, it stumbles and a guy dies. I mean, the oxen stumble and a guy dies. And David goes back and looks at the word and, and rediscovers that the ark can't be moved without putting it on the shoulders of the Levites. And it can't go out and be brought in without understanding the gatekeepers. So he takes it to Obed-Edom's house, who was one of the guys that was ordained to be a gatekeeper. And, and while it's in Obed-Edom's house, all the word says is that his house prospered phenomenally while it was keeping the ark in his house. And then David uh, orders it to be brought to Jerusalem, but he at least does it right. He has the Levites carry it in. So I think that he... Because a guy died, he realized how important this task was to make sure that, that we followed the protocols of God, especially when you're dealing with the ark. And now if you think about the ark as representative of his throne and his presence, because he sits on the mercy seat, and his glory is always supposed to be above it. So uh, I don't view it as uh, just an object that was in the Old Testament. I view it as wherever the presence of God is, there is mercy. And God wants to sit on the thrones of our hearts. So the ark was a gold box in, in 
the Old Testament, but today I'm the place that Jesus wants to sit in me and in you. And so I've got to learn how to go in and out with him correctly. I can't just violate the spiritual principles. Now, from a gatekeeper perspective, when I, when I studied that out a little bit in the Old Testament, I started questioning Jesus, saying, is this still valid today? Do you have people doing this today? And what are these keys that you gave to Peter? And the answer I got was, first of all, look at what Peter did after the cross um, and during the crucifixion. And you can start seeing the the principle of gatekeeping as well as the apostolic grace that comes out. So I was trying to separate those two things. I want to know what's apostolic and I want to know what's gatekeeping. They, they're not the same. So I want to see both in him. So here's here's the what he did. When Peter denies Jesus three times, in that same time frame, gross darkness fell upon the whole earth. And he's the one with the keys. So because he's the one with the keys, when he denied Jesus, it got dark. And when he denied him again, it got darker. And by the time he denies him a third time, darkness has fallen upon the whole earth. That's a guy with the keys on such a profound level we can't even think about. It. You know, we can't hardly comprehend and he must have realized the correlation between every time his heart made a wrong decision, it became detrimental for everyone else. And then he doesn't know how to remedy it because once it's been released, what was in his heart, he released something. Again, the keys, he opened the door to something dark, a denial of the, of the one that made him, you know, a betrayal of his friend. And then he abandons Jesus in his darkest hour. It isn't even there at the cross, but John was. And Mary was. And the rest of them flee. So he put himself above his friendship with God. And he's the one with the keys. It's profound, though, that Jesus trusted him on such a phenomenal level and that doesn't make sense at all until you realize the statement Jesus said when he said, Peter, you're going to deny me. Nevertheless, I have prayed that your faith does not fail. So the security of those keys were not put into the hands of a wicked man. The security of those keys were trusted to the heart of a wicked man on the platform of Jesus's prayers, which always get answered. And so the fact that Jesus prayed for him secured that this was going to end well, (laughs) you know, even though he knew Peter was going to mess it up. So when Peter is repenting, I think he was repenting not to be restored. I think he was repenting with remorse and with great sorrow, probably thinking that he wasn't qualified to, to be restored in any way for the rest of his life. He was going to probably find his way back to the fishing if the sun came back out again. Mm-hmm. And But after the resurrection, because Jesus understands this principle so well, when he shows himself to the women, he says, go and tell my, my, my men that I'm alive and Peter. That's the way it's written in Scripture. And Peter is mentioned specifically by name. Why? Because he's the one with the keys. So now that I'm resurrected, I have to come. I'm, he's going to follow his own protocol. He's going to come back into the body through the one with the keys. So Peter's got to open the door. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's funny because... Even later, later you see this in a comical way where a group is praying because Peter's in prison and then God lets him out and he shows up at the door. and They're, they're, they're afraid to let him in because they don't think he's alive. 
<laughs> he sort of got to live this out sometimes as constant reminders that Jesus goes through the same protocols. And uh, so think of this in light of this, that Jesus goes to the gate and he knocks on the door of his own house and he won't come in till the ones with the keys open up. That's the way he deals with it. He, he doesn't violate his own protocols. And then when we open, though, he comes in and sups with us. And it's not that Peter has more authority than the other guys. He's just got the right to exercise something with God because he's got this heart that God knows when, when push comes to shove, that heart's never going to fail me. He'll stumble, he'll fall, he'll make some wrong decisions, but in the end, he will not fail me. He will do my father's will. That's why he was trusted with the keys. And so a gatekeeper, I think, in our day, uh, usually doesn't fully understand what God wants them to do, but they often find themselves sitting at a very strategic spot, living in a place that's pretty uh, interesting to God, and God moves on their heart, and then that causes things to change in their city. Yeah. Now, that principle, though, can be good or bad. Like, if, if I sin and I'm a gatekeeper, I'm probably going to make things dark for my city. Whatever I hold in my heart, God might release in the city. Are are we, as believers, are we all gatekeepers? But are you saying to various degrees? I, I think on some level, because we are believers, we, we are operating in the principle. Because that's why he saves us, so we can save our households and others, too. Okay. Um, but I, I see it as a first fruit expression of the principle, but not necessarily an ordination. So all can prophesy too, but not all are prophets. So I, I think there is a special gifting that he calls gatekeepers, and he ordains them for it. But I think every believer in some capacity is probably having to operate in this principle. And once I began to see that it is a heart connection, that the keys don't look like actual metal keys, that the heart is the key. So if I open up my heart to Jesus, that's going to give many other people access. If I shut the door to him and I refuse to receive him, I'm going to lock a, a possible generation. I'm sure it be for something wonderful from heaven to flow through me. Yeah. Now, the other thing is the, the Levite side, that um, the special class that God made at the tribe of Levi's, the Levites. Um, if you look at the Old Testament, he chose the Levites because he asked for the firstborn of every house. And he asked for the firstborn even of the animals to, to be sacrificed to him. So your firstborn son became a Levite. And then when, when he had a certain amount of them, a percentage of, of the whole nation, then he changes that and he says, this is enough. I don't need any more. Now, now this can reproduce. So I've restored something to myself. You've, you've honored me with your firstborn. Now, what's the, what is the possession of the firstborn? What's the rights of the firstborn in the Old Testament? They got a double portion of the inheritance. They got an impartation of the strength of their father, the, the spiritual strength of their father. And they used, they got the scepter and the first right of, of covenant. So uh, the scepter means I'm walking with the covenant. I'm carrying the covenant forward. Ever once in a while, you see somebody in the Old Testament that didn't do that well, and they get disqualified. And the, the next, someone else in the house takes those things up. Now, that's a gatekeeping thing where God's saying, I'm not always going to give it to the firstborn, but I'm always going to make sure it falls into the hands of someone faithful. Okay, so because the, the firstborn was supposed to get the double portion, one thing we've not understood is why does God give them the double portion? It's not because they're more special and they get treated to more stuff, or, or, they, or they, they're allowed to spend more. 
They get the second portion because they become the stewards for what everyone in the household may need in, in the times of trouble. They become the patriarch and the banker for the household. So if you get into a problem, you go to the firstborn and you ask for help and he saves you for whatever you're going through so that the family doesn't get negatively affected. That's what the, the, the double portion was for. So if you t now take that into the gatekeeper, God gives the gatekeeper a way to tap into something with him that will make sure that the, the family doesn't get in trouble. Yeah. Uh, that we can rescue the house if we have calamity. Yeah. But if I get messed up, then I disqualify myself for, for watching over the door. God may assign that to somebody else because his first intention is I'm going to save my family. And you think that that's primarily like, you know, the the husband or the father of a family that would most likely be in our in our small little family in our homes. Yeah, I think when you look at it as uh, my decisions today are going to affect many generations of my house, that I'm opening up my heart to Jesus, I'm inviting Him in. Now, my prayers can transform the future of my house. My blessings are going to endure for a thousand generations. So because I opened the gate to the household to receive him, and now I'm going to speak his goodness, and I'm going to tell his good news upon everyone else, and I'm going to steward over the glory and the wonders of God, and I'm going to bless my house, I have just trans I've just changed the future. So I, but if I do not do that, if I say no, I don't want to have anything to do with God, then I'm going to lock it up. God will have to find another person somewhere down the road that will carry that into my house. And so I think we all, you're right in thinking that everybody probably has some degree of this that can affect others. But what I'm really trying to understand is the design of cities and how God's going to transform the earth and fill it with his glory. So I've been looking at this as uh, even if I have a city that does not have walls, do I have spiritual gates and are there gatekeepers assigned in my city? That takes us to the story that you guys are talking about. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I, I was just going to ask you, I, I didn't want to cut you off, but yeah, if you could share at least one before we go of how you've seen that at work, um, you know, in your in your life or in your city or whatever. Well, I've seen I've seen um, this so many times. I, I, probably this is something really important that we because I think it's happening all over, and in some way God's doing it, whether the majority of the body understands it or not, but. Uh, I have seen it have a profound change. So the, the first example you guys heard about was a, a gentleman in El Paso, and um, he he got a prophetic word several times that he was a gatekeeper in his city, and he had no idea what that actually meant. Uh, from Scripture, he had not studied it out. He was a little frustrated because he got these wonderful-sounding prophecies, but he didn't know what to do with them. Uh, he was a lawyer by, by trade and practice as a living, but uh, because he knew Jesus, he just was trying to figure it out. But then when I asked him, where do you live in the city? Uh, he said, well, if you drive into the city on I-10, the first house you see when you pass the city limits is mine. I was like, well, okay, so you're living at the gate. <laughs> you know. And you don't know what a gatekeeper is, but somehow you mysteriously ended up living at the gate. <laughs> and uh, then the fact that he's a lawyer is kind of interesting, too. Thinking of a lawyer as a gatekeeper, what is one of the primary things God wants to do in every city is bring justice. So he might be doing something more than we understand, you know, even if he's somewhat ignorant of the principle. But then I saw this other side of it, that his heart was messed up, and he admitted that he was really struggling with the problem because he hated some another brother in Christ. And and he brought it up. He admitted it. He asked for help, and he, he couldn't shake it. He kept trying to repent and get that out of him, and he just couldn't seem to get it out of him. So um, we took him through some deliverance, 
and some healing, and he got rid of that, and then the whole city transformed. And I marveled at seeing how much God affected the city by that one person's repentance. And that's when I began to really say, Jesus, I need to understand more about this principle because um, if he had to repent, a whole city would be locked up right now. People would be dead. I mean, for a crime rate to drop, the level we saw it drop, and that and that include the murder rate. You know, it's life it's life saving to get this figured out. Um, I came back to my own city uh, with a lot of zeal, saying, "I really want to understand this." And uh, just I went into a lot of prayer, asking God for more more wisdom on the topic, and. Uh, because I'm in Oklahoma, I've dealt a lot with native issues. So let me let me give you one more example. Um, we have a history in Oklahoma of broken covenants. We have a very high divorce rate, and the rate of divorce is actually higher among Christians than it is among the worldly people, which is a little bizarre. But we also have 39 nations in the state of Oklahoma that are native nations with reservations. And every single one of those nations has documented history and court cases documenting broken covenants to them. Now, they don't see those that history as just we broke a treaty or an agreement. They see it as a broken covenant. One of the things God had me look at was 1834, uh, President Jackson signs the Indian Removal Act. And that's a horrible piece of legislation, should have never been passed in the United States. But when you understand that before he became president, he was adopted by the Cherokee Nation. He married a chief's daughter in the Cherokee Nation. And he was given great honor and privilege among them. So when he signed the Indian Removal Act, he was betraying his household. He was breaking covenant with his own house. And then it becomes bloodshed in the nation. Uh, It doesn't just end up being a political maneuver. It becomes bloodshed. And if you look at the uh, the first state where that bloodshed happens to the innocents, especially to thousands of children, it was Georgia because the Cherokee tribe had been reduced to the state of Georgia for the reservation in the east before the Indian Removal Act. And then they're, they're driven on the Trail of Tears in 1834. All right, well, where did the Civil War start? The first state to rebel was Georgia because it was already standing on broken covenant that no one would take up the cause and repent for. So I I would make the claim that this country divided and broke covenant with itself because we let a gatekeeping principle sit in the White House and make a bad decision, and then we let injustice remain for dozens of years until it leads to bloodshed from one end of the country to the next. So when I began looking at it that way, it's like this is not just uh, the gates of my city, but, but when we don't understand these principles in government and we don't exercise the right way to pray over the the nation in our churches, then we are probably jeopardizing future generations to being able to live under the the blessings of God because they'll have to fix the problems that we caused. And iniquities, iniquities seem to stay on the land. They get attached to the land and innocent bloodshed and uh, trafficking of persons and you know, betrayal and injustice, they they stick to the land until somebody repents. And often when when God demands repentance, he'll find somebody that has the anointing of gatekeeper. He'll he'll lead them to to step into the gap just like he did Peter. 
and he'll and he'll deal with it and fix it eventually. But it's but it takes effort. So go back to scripture for one one just to top that off. Um, Peter understands the value of his calling whenever the earth got dark, but he still had a problem that he had not repented for. He hated the Gentiles. He loved the widows and the orphans and the poor, and he becomes a part of setting up the storehouse to take care of them, but he doesn't like the Romans, and he doesn't like the Gentiles, and he doesn't want to eat with them, and he doesn't want to come into covenant with them, but he's the guy with the keys. So Jesus moves on his heart again, and he finds himself sitting in an upper room in Joppa with a friend of his, hanging out, probably resting from, you know, probably taking a weekend vacation so to go fishing. <laughs> and uh, while he's up there, he has this vision of a sheet coming down out of the heavens, and everything that he won't eat is on that sheet. Mm-hmm. And God says to him, rise up, Peter, kill and eat. He's like, no way, I'm not doing that. Nothing on that sheet is kosher. and then it goes back up in the heavens so God deals with them three times kill and eat by the third time he realizes God's trying to show me something here so I, I think he opens up his heart and then God says to him here's the real answer to what you're seeing it's not about animals it's do not call unclean what I have called clean I'm going to save the whole earth and you're standing in my way. and You got the keys. So I want you to go to the Gentiles. And he, he, he says, yes. Okay. Now what's interesting about that particular passage in scripture is while he's doing that in Joppa, three days before he has that vision, an angel appears to Cornelius, a Roman centurion, Italy heard sent for Simon and over there in Joppa and he'll come and tell you what I want you to know now why didn't the angel just tell Cornelius how to get saved because the gatekeeper had not opened the door yet but God Jesus again his prayers are prevailing he's so he's so trusting that he can turn Peter's heart that he sends the angel ahead of the decision that Peter had to make. He sets it in motion before Peter says yes. I found out when I researched this that uh, according to some of the Jewish writings, when Paul had his Damascus experience and he's he has a face-to-face with Jesus on the road to Damascus and he falls off of his horse and then he gets transformed. It happened at the same time the angel was in Cornelius' house within a day or two apart, according to some writings. So um, that means that angel was setting two things in motion simultaneously. He was opening up the potential for the Gentiles to hear the gospel, and he was saving someone that God was going to send to the Gentiles as an apostle. And yet Peter had to say yes, or the door wouldn't open. So when, when Jesus gets Peter to say yes, immediately the servants from Cornelius are knocking on his door and he doesn't hesitate to go with them. Now here's the problem for Peter. Peter understood covenant. And if you crossed over someone's threshold and entered into their house, you were required by covenant to eat whatever they said in front of you. So you didn't want to go into a Gentile's house if you didn't want to be in covenant with that Gentile. So because he understood covenant, he probably had refused to always go into a Gentile's house until Jesus said, don't call unclean what I call clean. And then it's evidential to him that these servants are coming because Jesus appeared or an angel appeared. So this must be what God wants. And he goes and he doesn't even question it after that. He goes right into Cornelius's house. He sits down and I promise you he was probably served pepperoni pizza or something like that (laughs) and 
And then he just shares his testimony, and he doesn't even get to finish it. I mean, it's the shortest sermon in Scripture. He doesn't even get to finish it, and the Holy Spirit pretty much knocks him out of the way so that he can fill everybody in the house. But that's the first fruit of Gentiles being saved. And, uh, and to think that at the same time, God's already got on his knees while Cornelius' house is being saved. It's phenomenal. So the gospel then spreads like a wildfire because the guy with the keys opened the door. And another guy that was going to be given gatekeeping grace, meaning Paul, also says yes to Jesus. And then you see those two guys periodically butt heads again over this same problem because Peter gets locked up again and Paul will not let him mess this up again. So Paul comes all the way to Jerusalem to confront him because he understood that he had the keys to the kingdom. Now, I, I want to finish with one thing that's important. I don't, I don't think God trusted Peter with the keys as the only guy alive. I think God was trying to teach uh, all of the apostles how to walk in this principle. But he, he uses Peter because it becomes a part of the written word. It's, it becomes an example to all of us. But every single person needs to uh, be a little wiser with the principle and at least inquire of the Lord, how is my heart affecting everyone else in the city? Or how can I potentially affect everybody else for the kingdom of God, maybe in the whole world, if you'll let me? And uh, that's, that's when we should begin really understanding our own design, how God has made us. And then move with it with power because he wants us to. Yeah, and I, and I was also going to add, um, it sounds like since, as you were talking about it, that there are, there are some that God has chosen in greater measure, right, to be uh, on, on a larger stage, have more of a effect, as you said, Peter, with the keys of gatekeeping. So... It, I, it sounds like it would be wise for us to pray for God to give us discernment to find the people in our area that are those people that have a greater measure of authority if their hearts are right. Not that not that we don't in our own family, but well, I think I think this principle is all through the New Testament. Um, we just sort of missed it if you. If you once you can sort of label and say, okay, I see gatekeeping in the Old Testament. Now, when I read the New Testament, I can see the principle at work many, many times. So, for instance, um, if, if my city is struggling with something and I want to fix it, I can go at it politically. I can go at it, uh, you know, from a community perspective. I can become a, an activist or whatever. But if you look at Scripture, God tells us how to fix it a little different way. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I heal from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, that's a gatekeeper scripture because before he heals the land, he requires us to repent for something. I have to stop and, and consider that and say, maybe if God tells us we can repent and heal the land, he's also telling us we might have done something to mess up the land. I think that all of the wicked that are prospering in the earth are doing so because they compromised someone righteous. They messed up somebody with the keys. And then they get away with the wickedness until we repent. If you go back and look at every revival that's recorded in history, we don't know who the last person to repent for was before God just overwhelmingly released a phenomenal wave of his grace that saves many. We end up usually recording the leaders and usually recording some of the overall effect, but we don't always have the name of the sinner that says I repent and then the, and then before the sun went down the glory of God broke out in the nation 
But it's following that principle if my people will humble themselves to pray and seek my face. And so I think that we just got to get to a greater level of understanding that my heart is the key to transforming the nation. And if I want to see my my city turned uh, into a better place to live, and if I want to see my nation uh, restored to righteousness on some level, then the people that already know God have got to get busy with fixing their heart. That's right. Wow. Well, thank you so much for that, that Tim, and, and for your time once again. Um, and actually, that that kind of leads to a segue. If um, if you're willing to, to come back another time, we'd love to have you, because one of the questions I was going to ask you um, was dealing with strongholds. You know, I think about my own life and things that I've dealt with since I was young, and I don't know if it's a demonic issue or a flesh issue or both, and I think that it would be very practical for our listeners to hear, you know, how do we how do we deal with those areas in our hearts and how do we surrender and how do we overcome? You know, is it a deliverance issue? Is it a, a discipline issue or whatever? But maybe just gonna kind of get a little more practical with it. But um, thank you for sharing everything about gatekeeping. And uh, yeah, if you're willing to to come back another time, we'd love to 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 dig in a little more. I, th- I think I'd like that because I, I, I feel like some people are trying to, um, you know, go from where I am right now, which might not be in great shape to being super spiritual and don't know how, what the path is to get there. Right. And also the, the things that you run into along the way, sometimes I don't know if it's me or if it's, uh, you know, something demonic or if it's just, um, you know, but I, I've, there's some very practical things that I'd like to to say. Here's what I did in my own journey that that built line upon line, and then then you start doing deliverance and things too. It accelerates it, but it's not always an either or. Sometimes it's just uh, learning, learning the ways of God and walking in it. You're going to run into strongholds, and uh, and God wants us to overcome those things for many, not just for ourselves. So God needs to do that. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Tim. Appreciate your time as always. And um, yeah, look forward to having you back. So uh, have, a, have a blessed rest of your Sunday. And um, yeah. And so now this episode, uh, we're going to uh, release next week. So we're, we're basically one episode ahead right now. So what I what i just posted on our uh, on all our platforms today was what luke and, and i and, and our friend don recorded last week so this one um i'll i'll email you the link next week once it's posted so all right sounds great yeah thank you tim for your time thank you very much appreciate you guys and look forward to seeing you again you sounds bet good. take care all right bye-bye been listening to the days of noah podcast thanks for tuning in again this week don't forget to like share and subscribe follow us on your favorite podcast platform share it with your family and friends feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions comments or suggestions for the show at the days of noah podcast at gmail.com take care god bless